0: Hello and welcome to the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is episode 44 and I am hosting today. My name is Ben Olson. I'm in Washington, D.C. And with me, as always, is Nathan Fox in San Francisco. Nathan, how's it going?
1: I'm great, man. I'm, I have something on my mind since last episode. Um, okay. You mentioned yeah. just briefly in passing that it was a long story as to why you don't swear. And I wonder if that's a story that you can share with the listeners or not.
0: Yeah, I don't know if that was, I don't know if it's really a long story. It's just, um, actually right after I said that, I thought, what, is it really a long story? No, it's not. It's just, um, I, uh, grew up not swearing, uh, you know, big no, no in my family. So I find myself, um, finding all sorts of alternatives to express myself, uh, in class and. I feel like the podcast is an extension of class. Um, but every now and then, you know, the only way to express yourself is with a a proper swear word, which I'm not very good at because I don't usually do that. But.
1: <laughs> I feel like the podcast is an extension of my class too. That's why I swear so much on the podcast. <laughs> yeah.
0: Good. Yeah. So no, yeah, that's it. It's not a long story.
1: Hey, um, well, thank, thanks for that. I was, I've been wondering for two weeks. I've been wondering, um, I have a big announcement, but let's go through this uh, like teaser agenda first, and then I'll, I'll make my big announcement.
0: Sure. So today we have a lot of good questions, actually. Someone uh, who's been studying for a really long time and still stuck in the mid-140s and wondering whether uh, she should take the, or he, actually, I don't know, it's anonymous, but he or she should take the, the October LSAT, which is in just like a week and a half now. Um, someone else uh, has been preparing a lot and... Uh, His scores are slipping as the test day approaches, and he's wondering what to do. Someone else is wondering how to go faster on the games, which is a very common question that we get. Someone else is also wondering, should we worry about the writing sample? Quick answer to that, not very much, but we'll, we'll go into that a little bit more. And then the last question is, are early decision programs worth it? Yeah, that's a good question. I think things have changed recently. With the schools, you know, not having as many applicants, but we can get into that in a little bit more. But a lot of good stuff. And then we'll go over, well, we should start with a, with a game uh, from the June 2007 test. But before we talk about that, uh, you have a big announcement.
1: Uh, yeah, man. I've been uh, very busy these last couple of weeks. And one of the reasons why is because I am about to move, uh, not full-time, but I'm about to move half-time to Los Angeles. Uh, which is exciting and kind of scary. And so I have uh, already made myself available for private tutoring in Los Angeles. If anybody listening is in LA and you're looking for uh, some help, I am already available. You can book me through my website in Los Angeles. I'll be in LA about half time and I'll be in San Francisco about half time. And um, as always, I'll be always available on Skype. So those are the three different options right now for private tutoring for me.
0: So I have to know, why are you doing this to yourself?
1: <laughs> well, um, yeah, so I uh, live alone in San Francisco, and mm-hmm. I have two really, really good friends in L.A. who I visit a lot. We hang out a lot, spend holidays together and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've been like begging me to go be roommates with them in Los okay. Angeles. Mm-hmm. And uh, because I'm single and don't have any kids and don't have any plans to have any kids, I can do things like um, live half time in two different <laughs> cities. <laughs> and, uh, my plan with, uh, with Mike and Nikki is, in L.A. is going to be basically to play board games all the time and uh, drink and play video games. And um, so, yeah, um, which is what we do when we hang out on holidays and whatnot. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to um, that very childish half of my life in Los Angeles. The other thing about L.A. is that, uh, you know, I recently started riding a motorcycle. And uh, the worst part about L.A. is the traffic. Mm. But with the motorcycle, there is no traffic. And so I was down there um, over Labor Day. I was down in L.A. with the bike. And I just realized that, like, oh, my God, I can go in any direction uh, quickly and I can go explore this whole new place. And uh, it felt like playing a video game a little bit when you get to a new level and you have a whole new map to explore. Okay. And uh, I have explored the limits of the map here in San Francisco. I have, you know, there's nowhere that I haven't been because I've been in Northern California my whole life.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: I've always loved LA. I've never lived in LA, and so yeah, I'm not ready for the uh, full time move down there, and I wouldn't want to. But uh, half time sounds just about perfect. So I'm looking forward to the new adventure.
0: So what you you must have a pretty set schedule, right? Because you have to come back and teach your classes. So you're gonna like fly down on Thursday or Friday, and then come back on Tuesday morning or something. Yeah, I
1: haven't or... quite figured it out yet. My schedule for the for January is still kind of up in the air. So okay. I'm going to... I'll rearrange things a little bit. Like, I might start teaching Tuesday-Wednesday instead of Tuesday-Thursday.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I don't think that would be a huge problem. Maybe... I don't know. Who knows? We'll we'll see how it works out with the in-person classes. But basically, you know, I make my own schedule, so I can make it however I want. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's the plan.
0: Well, you, so you know that... Uh, <clears throat> Elon Musk owns uh, Tesla, which is in Palo Alto, and uh, SpaceX, which is in L.A., and on Tuesday morning, he flies from L.A. to Palo Alto, spends two days there, and then goes back to L.A., if not to New York or other places. So maybe you could, um, you know... hit a ride? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Just shoot him an email. If Elon's <laughs> listening, I would definitely take a
1: ride um my plan was to actually ride uh back and forth just so that i don't have to fuck around with the airport and whatever
0: oh wait hold um, this you're going to take your your bike down there
1: i'm actually looking for a new bike so that because I, I, my plan is to have a bike here and a bike there and potentially a bike to take back and forth because <laughs> i for the for the freeway blast on i5 it's like sort of a different bike than the bike i would really like to be riding around in the city
0: okay um yeah.
1: so I'm, I'm looking for like a one of those like or touring bikes or something like that, like, uh, so that I can go 100 miles an hour on I 5 well, so, in between.
0: Yeah, I, I'm from California, but as a Northern Californian, I never really went down to Southern California, California except for maybe Disneyland when I was a kid. So I just have this memory though that it was really far. How long is the trip?
1: Yeah, from San Francisco to Los Angeles is about 375 miles. Something like okay. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of it is super boring I-5 driving, which is okay. just middle of nowhere, kind of cow shit, smell. Um, it's like not the most pleasant part of the world. In fact, okay. it's maybe one of the least pleasant parts of the world that I know of. Um, I can say that because I'm from there in the Central <laughs> Valley.
0: Uh we're going to get angry listeners now, <laughs> all three of them from that area. Yeah,
1: no. People in Bakersfield, I don't think, are really listening to the LSAT <laughs> podcast. <laughs> They're listening to the, like... Hey,
0: we got people from Qatar, right? So maybe... Uh... That's
1: true. We do have people from all over the place. Um, yeah, it's it's just, like, really 100 miles an hour, just like literally, like, 100 miles an hour, just just blasting on I-5. And so it doesn't take as long as you think, because cause you're just going so fast, and it's, it's yeah. so straight.
2: Huh. Yeah. Um once
1: you get down to within, you know, 90 minutes of Los Angeles, then you like hit the Grapevine and then it becomes interesting again. Mm-hmm. But there's there is like a solid couple hours where you're just blasting on i5 and it's super boring. But the airport is also super boring and by the time you get to the airport,
0: yeah, the whole and time get on the flight checking in
1: and everything and then get out of the airport, it's like, you know, that's already going to take a few hours anyway. I don't know. I just I'm I'm envisioning myself being on the bike instead of being in the airport. That often.
0: Cool. Well,
1: yeah. Let's so anyway. how it goes.
0: Well, <laughs> it'd be interesting <laughs> to see what it's like to live in two places um yeah, by kind of, choice in such a way. It's you know?
1: interesting. My my friends are also um there are a couple but they don't intend to have kids and they're, you know, coming up on 40 now and they don't have any kids and they just like go to movies and play video games and play board games and fuck around. And we've been talking about it a lot. And they're like, well, hey, we have this like, non-traditional lifestyle of not having kids. And we why not have a roommate when we're 40 years old and fuck around and <laughs> play games all the time? <laughs> I'm like, you're right. We live in cities and people aren't going to judge us. We can do whatever we want. <laughs> all right, that's what we're going to do. Yeah. So anyway, I'll be uh, broadcasting on a future episode of the Thinking app podcast. You'll hear me say Nathan Fox in Los Angeles, which will be fun. Yeah. And uh, if you're in L.A. and you uh, are connected, especially if you're connected to any pre-law groups or anything like that, uh, boy, I'd love to come and uh, do like a free logic games seminar at your school just to meet some folks. So if you're connected, please send me an email, Nathan at foxlsat.com, and uh, I will all come talk to you and your friends. And uh, even if you're not connected to a group like that, but you're in L.A. and you want to have a beer, uh, same thing, Nathan at foxlsat.com. And next time I'm in L.A., I'll, uh, I'll come
0: say hi. Awesome. Well, uh, did you have any other big announcements other than <laughs> a dual life that you're going to start living? No,
1: that'll that'll be it. We'll see. Ne- next episode, maybe I'll have some new announcements to make, but I
0: don't know. That's it for now. Okay. All right. Well, um, should we jump into the game from June 2007? Would that sure, be why not? You? Yeah, okay. So we're looking at the June 2007 LSAT, which you can download. Uh, just Google June 2007 LSAT, and Google will probably actually finish that search yeah. for you because it's pretty common. Anyways, it's the free LSAT, and we're looking at Section 1. This is the first game in this section. And it's a little hard to talk about games, logic games, uh, through a podcast because you can't draw out the game, which is really the most important part of it. But there are a lot of other things about games that we can talk about, and hopefully you can take those away and use them as you uh, encounter games. Uh, one question that I get a lot is, I understand that there are ordering games or sequencing games, whatever you want to call them. There are grouping games, um, and then there are games that sort of combine ordering and grouping. But I'm not sure how to figure out what type of game I'm looking at or how to set it up. And so I thought maybe as we read through this, we can talk about some of the clues that tell us right away what type of game we're looking at. Uh, This one's a little bit of an easier game, but uh, as we go through these games in this test, I think get a lot of insights. In any case, Nathan, do you want to start reading this game or sure? Do you have anything I, else you want to say?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I would just say it, game identification is a critical skill, right? You, you have to be able to um, figure out what type of game you're looking at. I got some feedback from a student, you know, asking, um, Nathan, why don't you do more teaching us games divided up by type? You know, mm-hmm. I, I looked at other books and they do a lot of drilling games by type. Mm-hmm. And why don't you know I think it'd be more you know, why are you always just giving us a random game and having us figure out, you know, having us figure it out? That doesn't seem fair or whatever. <laughs> and <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I don't think they actually said that, but that was kind of the was, We can imagine they said that. Yeah, That's just unfair. That was sort of the sentiment of it of like or just, you know, like this is difficult. Why are yeah. you just throwing a random game at us? Sure. Well, the reason why I do that and the reason why I don't do a lot of drilling by type Mm-hmm. is because when you open up the October 3rd LSAT or whatever LSAT you're taking, it's not going to say, here is a grouping game at the top of the game. And it's not going to say, here is a sequencing game at the top of the game. So why are you practicing like that? Mm-hmm. You know, if, if all you do is become, oh, okay, I'm the master of the sequencing games and I'm the master of the grouping games, but then when you, if you freeze up when you see a new game because you don't know what template to use, then you're not going to perform very well on the test, right? Yeah. So, I think this is why and I believe you do this too, right? You do a lot of mixed sections in class. You mm-hmm. do a lot of timed sections and you do a lot of like just here's some game, here's a game, do it. Yeah. So, we're going to talk about it a little bit today via this first game in the June 2007 LSAT how does that actually happen? How how does it happen that you figure out what type of a game and what sort of a template to use? So this game, uh, questions 1 through 5, and I'll just read the setup. It says, a company employee generates a series of five-digit product codes in accordance with the following rules. Codes use the digits 0, 1, 2, 3, and 4, and no others. Each digit occurs exactly once in any code. The second digit has a value exactly twice that of the first. I think at that point, that's where I know what type of game this is.
0: Yeah, I would I would agree completely. Um, there's sort of hints that it's an ordering game, and chances are it's an ordering game, since about half of the games on the set are some sort of ordering game. But... Right there, you're talking about the second digit. You're talking about the first digit. You're thinking, this is going to be ordered, I'm sorry, or sequenced, however, you, whatever you want to say, in some way. And I'm going to think about ordering this from left to right. Is that yeah. what you're thinking?
1: Yeah, then the last rule says the value of the third digit is less than the value of the fifth digit. So at that point, you put it all together. And by the way, I mean, do you teach your class to read the whole setup and all of the rules before they start writing things?
0: I actually teach them a a couple options because I do end up drawing the rules as I go if I'm very confident what type of game it is. You know, so many games, they start out the same way. I know what it is right away. And so I just start drawing it. And when people say, hey, I'm not sure what type of game it is, and they feel the need to start drawing, I say, well, don't draw, just read the whole thing, and then you'll you're much more likely to feel confident about what type of game it is. And if even if you're still not, look at the first question. Sometimes seeing how the first question is asked can give them a clue as to whether it's an ordering game or a grouping game or some other type of game, a mixture of those two. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess I, I start drawing as I go unless I'm not sure what's going on, and then I just read all the rules. Okay.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a, I think that's right. There are times where you're just going to see right through the game immediately. And I guess in that case, if you want to start writing right away, I suppose that's okay. I do feel like it only takes you 20 seconds to read through the setup and all of the rules.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you might figure out that you would be better off starting with the fourth rule
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: when you make your mm-hmm. diagram. You know, especially in a game where you're going to be able to link a bunch of rules together.
0: Yeah, I agree. When you say start with the fourth rule, I mean, the first thing that I'm trying to do is create the like the structure of the diagram itself, yeah. you know, the, the slots. Yeah. And that is often in the paragraph, not always, but often it's kind of revealed in the paragraph. Sure. But you're saying after that, then you might want to start with, the fourth rule or whatever, depending on how these things work.
1: Yeah, are. on a game, I mean, because the games that we're going to really crush are the games where we can link a lot of the rules together, right?
0: Yeah, And uh, That agree.
1: happens in sequencing games, and it also happens in grouping games. Mm-hmm. But uh, frequently, it's if the first rule says, you know, if J, then K,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. well, if that doesn't link neatly to the next rule, I might not want to start by drawing if J, then K. I might want to leave it there for a second and mm-hmm. sort of start with a rule that clearly links to another rule.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense.
1: Yeah. So I mean, I think you're right. I might be already drawing a template like, oh, there's four spots in the in group and there's three spots in the out group, you know, something like that. I can draw. Mm-hmm. But especially with regard to the rules, when the rules are going to link together, I I, I often will start my picture in the middle somewhere, mm-hmm. rather than just take the rules in in the order that they were given.
0: That's interesting. I do that too sometimes. Uh, I also notice that I will sometimes just draw the first rule because I'm sort of in this default mode of drawing as I go, Yeah. which doesn't always happen. Again, if, if it's not clear to me what's going on, I read the rest of the rules to figure that out because I feel like that's the most important thing first and foremost. But once I have that figured out, sometimes I will draw the first rule and then I'll look at the second and it won't link in and I'll just scan down and say, okay, what's another rule that deals with K or J? So I can then link that in right then and there instead of drawing the first rule, drawing the second rule, and then realizing now the second rule is kind of in this awkward position right next to the first rule. I need to erase it and right. move it somewhere else. It's just adding clutter and delaying. Yeah, I
1: so think. we're totally on the same page with that, right? It's it's definitely like a measure twice, cut once sort of a sure. thing. Sure, yeah. Um, the people who draw the most do tend to do the best, at least in my experience.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I can almost glance at your page and just like, based on how much writing you did, um, the people who did a lot of writing almost always do really well. The pe- the people who, who crash and burn are the ones who just don't write anything at all.
0: With the exception, I'm sure you probably agree with this, is if you have a lot of writing because you're testing out each answer choice, oh, there's yeah. probably something... It's ironic, you did not enough writing up front, so then you had to do more writing below, and it's great that you're testing stuff out. It's better than doing nothing and just right. freaking out, but you're probably doing way too much work.
1: Yeah, the, the point is, you know, you want to do more work up front so that up you front. don't have to reinvent the wheel for every single question. Yeah. Anyway, okay, so I think we agree that, you know, you don't, you don't have to just write everything down immediately the second you first read it. Mm-hmm. I definitely don't write out, like, a list of every single rule. I've, I see a lot of people just down the left-hand column of their diagram, they'll, yes. they'll write all the rules and sometimes even, like, number the rules Mm-hmm. and maybe that's like an okay beginning strategy.
0: I think what it is is it's easier to draw the rules like that, especially when you're starting out, because you don't have to think about anything except that individual rule. Right. But I don't think it's a very like holistic approach to the game. It's just sort of like, oh, here's a rule, draw it. Here's a rule, draw it, as opposed to thinking about how that rule, once you read it and understand it, relates to everything else.
1: Yeah, and there are certain rules that I think it's an absolute waste of time to draw out the rule as in a list of rules. You know, when, yeah. it, when it tells you um, L must go second, if you put L equals 2 in, down on the page, <laughs> that is a, that's a waste of space. It's a waste of time. I mean, that needs to go just directly into the picture. Just put L in the second spot in your picture.
0: Yeah. And this is actually uh, this is one thing why I I stress so much to students to create the the template or the, you know, the slots that they're going to put their variables into first, because how you arrange that those slots, whether it's left to right or up and down or however, you know, you need to arrange those. That's going to dictate how you draw the remaining rules, whether they go into the template or out of the even if they go out of the template, are you going to be drawing them next to each other, left to right or up and down? It's all going to depend on your overall structure of your diagram,
1: yeah so this game uh well the the purpose of our conversation here was to talk about how we would have recognized I, I think this is clearly a sequencing game. Mm-hmm. You said that there were uh some clues how did you how did you first start to get the sense that this was going to be a sequencing or an ordering game
0: well the the first I guess some of the clues are it's cheating a little bit, but it's the first game and it looks very simple, and it's got five digits. I kind of thought, oh, this is probably going to be an order game. That's not something to really rely on. I would say the main clue was it said five-digit product code, and I was thinking if you have a five-digit product code...
1: Yeah, that's not going to be in groups.
0: Yeah, it seems like it's just going to be lined up. It's like a barcode on, yeah. the, on a product, so that was my first clue. But I didn't know for sure. It's like, you know, they can go in any direction. So, I would have to agree with you. When you read that third rule, the second digit has a value exactly twice that of the first digit. It's like, okay, there is a second digit, there is a first digit. We're trying to order these first, second, third, fourth, fifth.
1: Yeah, it's clear at that point that the, the order matters. If they're talking about the second digit and they're talking about the first digit, then okay, obviously the order matters now. And that's our job. It says each digit occurs exactly once in any mm-hmm. code. So now we have the five digits zero, one, two, three, four. And all we're doing is just putting those in order. Yeah. And this is a very basic sequencing game. I do think this is a really good game to practice. Um, It's also a good game for doing uh, worlds, right? Or scenarios. Yeah. Yeah, This might be, if I was going to teach a class on um, when do I do worlds, Mm -hmm. this is the game that I I can't not do worlds on this game. It's, It's just impossible. I would have to do so much more work if I didn't do two worlds on this game. Yeah. And why, why is that?
0: Uh, because of that, that third rule, the second digit has, exactly, has a value exactly twice that of the first digit. So if the second digit is exactly twice that of the first digit, the first digit could be 1 and the second digit could be 2, which would be exactly twice. Or the first digit could be 2 and the second digit could be 4, but there's there's no other combination of digits that will get a, give us that result because our numbers are 0, 1, 2, 3, and 4. So given those two options, filling up two of the five slots seems hugely beneficial. And so I would agree with you. I'd create two worlds, one where you have 1 and 2 in slots 1 and 2, and then where you have 2 and 4 in slots 1 and 2. And then given the fact that the last rule deals with the at least two of the last three digits, um, we're going to be able to figure out more stuff because we've already gotten rid of two of our digits.
1: Yeah, I mean, the only way to do this game as quickly as possible is... And I don't always say this because there are many ways to skin a cat. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, you know, there are novel solutions. There are, there's just a lot of different ways to get there on a lot of logic games. And you can do this game without doing those two templates off the bat. But boy, if you do those two templates off the bat, it's going to save you a lot of work when you get down into the questions. And again, those two templates are one, two, blank, blank, blank. And then the other one is two, four, blank, blank, blank. And I know that's obvious to a lot of our listeners, but it's not obvious to a lot of our listeners as well. So if you're just kind of starting out with the games or if you're trying to get better at the making uh, worlds or making scenarios thing, I think this first game from June 2007 is a really good one to... uh, Practice, and I'm sorry. I know that you were told that there would be no math on the LSAT, but uh, there is a tiny bit of math here, and uh, I'm, I imagine that you know my third grade niece Haley could probably figure it out. So, since you've graduated from college, or you're about to graduate from college, <laughs> you know, hopefully you can handle this little bit of uh, of math.
0: Yeah, this is it. I mean, we've seen these rules in other games, but that's about it. It's asking you to find. Twice as much as something else or something that's a little higher or a little less than something else, that's, that's it.
1: Yeah, basic. some very basic uh, addition, subtraction, multiplication. Not too tough. Anything else we want to say about this game or should we dive into our listener questions?
0: Oh, uh, let's dive in. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So the first person um, or the first question that we're tackling today is from someone who is stuck in the mid-140s. Here she has been studying for nearly 200 hours and she's gone through a lot of things. Uh, Kaplan's book, comprehensive book, Blueprints, Logic Games book, uh, LSAT for dummies, which I don't know much about that. But anyways, she remains in the mid 140s over over the past 10 practice tests and she's trying to figure out uh, what to do. And... I guess her highest score was a 153, started at a 135 and really needs to break up into the mid 150 range to go to the school that she wants to go to. Um, she could push the test back to December, but it's been, she's put in so much time and effort, just not feeling like I'm ready to do that. And so she's wondering whether to take the test in October. Do you have any thoughts about this?
1: First, I would want to talk about her materials,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and
1: and then I think I would want to talk about whether or not she should take the test. Yeah. Um. So the first thing is with the materials. It, I'm I would be really interested in what she would score if she actually took a test from the last few years. Mm-hmm. You know, the test uh, changes pretty slowly, but it does change, mm-hmm. and I have no idea what tests she's been doing from this Kaplan book. Yeah. Uh, I do know that Kaplan tends to use uh, old tests because they're cheaper to license. Mm-hmm. And I have no idea what's in LSAT for Dummies. I, would, I have never heard anything good about that book. I am willing to wager that that book is not very helpful. Mm-hmm. So that's my, you know, I, I think she could do some self-diagnosis. She says, I have the book of the most 10 recent lsat tests but i haven't started those yet Mm -hmm. and i feel like that's a bit of a mistake you know if you're going to study 200 hours but you haven't yet done any of those most recent lsats well that's not the strategy that i would recommend i don't think that's the strategy you would recommend either no
0: It's, it's a little it's unfortunate too because we only have seven what four? 12 days at this point. Well,
1: by the time this podcast comes out, she's going to have three days. So, you know, this is coming out yeah. right before the October LSAT. And, yeah. Um, which is fine. It's not like we can tell her anything really new that she, that she didn't already know. She, her plan was to start doing those recent tests. So I guess my, my first advice then would be do those recent tests. I mean, do tests from 2010 and beyond. You know, do tests that are in this decade. Mm-hmm. Time yourself. Score yourself. And then then see what your score really is. Because when you're doing old tests, who knows? I mean, you might be doing tests where the logic games are a lot harder and just sort of beyond your level. And I don't know how predictive her 145 to 148 recent range really is if she hasn't been doing recent tests. Yeah. So I'd start with that. Her diagnosis might change a lot if she starts actually doing those recent tests. I agree. She started at 145, uh, 135 and is now 145 to 148. That's a pretty solid improvement. We have no idea what her ceiling is, right? We,
2: nope.
1: You know, this is why you do lots of practice tests and why you keep track of your results, because if her scores are still going up, then, you know, she's still going up. And if you're still going up, then you have a choice. Do you want to take the test, or do you want to wait and see if your scores continue to go up? Yeah. Um, So I guess we don't really know. The decision about whether or not to take the test is a tough one, and it's really pretty personal. My opinion would be that if you're still going up and you have no idea what your ceiling is, then it's probably
0: silly to sit for the test. I agree, because I think... Well, I mean, we'll have to see... She have to see what she gets on these these recent tests. But let's assume that she ends up scoring upper 140s. Still not quite in the mid 150s, which is totally possible. I don't think she's going to get into any good law schools or even just, you know, law schools that at least can provide some sort of valuable legal education with those scores. Do you agree?
1: With a 145 to a 148
0: or even upper 140s? Let's say all the way up to one fifty. I mean, I would still be pretty hesitant about the schools that would accept that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't. I'm not sure. I really agree a hundred percent with that. I, I do though. I mean, I cringe when I think about someone scoring one forty eight and then going and paying full price to law school. Mm-hmm. I, I, I do cringe because. Law school is super expensive. It's super time consuming. And if you really busted your ass, and if 148 is the very best score you could achieve on the LSAT, then I feel like law school is going to be very difficult for you. You're going to have a hard time competing for grades. You're going to pay $150,000 or more. And then you're also going to have probably a really hard time with the bar exam. So. That's not, not everybody. Some people are different. Some people are exceptions. I mean, I do know people who have gone to law school with less than a 150 and ended up very successful. Yeah. Um, But I feel like that's the exception far more than it is the rule. So I, I usually look at, you know, I, I, I want people to get to 155. Mm -hmm. If they get to 160, then I'm totally comfortable, you know? With them going to law school, if that's really what they want to do, Um, somewhere around 150 is my sort of cringe, cringing point. Now, Mm -hmm. that's not—I don't care about what your first test is, because I've seen students go from the 130s to the 160s. You know, that's so I don't, I don't really care where you start, but if you're going to finish at 150 and you really gave it a really good effort, then I do question whether law school is going to be a good investment for you.
2: Yeah
0: and as part of that effort we I would want to also know I'm sure you would want to know as well is what strategies is is she using because um like when she takes these tests uh, test 62 63 those are the first tests in the most recent book of official tests I would tell her to put them into the score tracker which is yeah. at strategyprep.com forward slash tracker I would Mark the questions that she didn't have time to get to, so that she could see what percentage of the questions that she's actually answering does she get right. Is she getting? Is in other words, is her accuracy rate pretty high? If it is, that's more promising than if it's low. I would also look at the questions that she got that she got wrong on the. There's a page in there. It's called the priority page. When you go there, you'll see the questions that you got wrong and you'll see the difficulty level. And if a lot of those are difficulties four or five, that means a bunch of other people got them wrong as well. But if they're difficulties one and two, you need to look at those and say most people, the vast majority of test takers are getting these right. Why did I get this wrong? Is this a silly mistake? Can I understand it now, figure it out, fix it? Because those are the easy points that you should be picking up. And if that's still hard to pick up, then the the score is probably reflected where she's at and she should really be considerate of whether she should go to law school. But if, if those make sense and she can fix them, then maybe she's just focusing her time and effort on the wrong questions or the ones that are you know, harder to sort of move the needle.
1: Yeah, I mean, she's mentioned the Blue Brent Logic Games book, which I imagine is pretty helpful. Um, but the Kaplan book, I think we've never heard anything good about that book. And mm-hmm. LSAT for dummies we don't really know anything about and just kind of assume based on the price that it's probably not really good. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really possible that she's never got any good help on logical reasoning or reading comprehension, which is 75% of the test. Yeah, And it's, it's possible that she's leaving a ton of points on the table. You know, she says... Um, actually, I don't remember if it was he or she. We're calling her she. Eh,
0: yeah, sorry. I'm sorry. I don't know.
1: Um, I... It says, I, I don't think I can push the test back to December as I don't feel like I will be any better for it. Well, okay. I mean, if it's true that you're not improving, or if it's true that you're not going to improve, then why would you push it back to December? Mm-hmm. But I don't know that that's true. And if, if you're just kind of like giving up, not that I don't feel your pain I mean, I get it that you don't want to study LSAT for the rest of your life, and I don't recommend you do study LSAT for the rest of your life. But if you study for another two months and you get the right kind of help and you improve from you know your highest score of 153 to all of a sudden you get a 156 or a 157 or something like that, you know, even a few points, mm-hmm. or instead of her average in the high 140s, if she instead gets like 155, that is a life-changing improvement on the LSAT. I mean, literally, it will change the course of your life. So I know that it's hard work, but uh lawyers work hard. Yeah. And you know, how how much do you really want this and what do you what is it that you want to do with your life? Because pushing if pushing the test back two months. Um, ends up getting you into dramatically better law schools or ends up getting you thousands, tens of thousands, $100,000 worth of scholarship money, mm-hmm. well, that's the most money you're ever going to make in two months. So yeah. I don't know. I mean, without knowing this person really better, it's, it's hard to say. But uh, I guess I would encourage them to at least consider pushing it back if they think there's any reasonable chance that they can improve.
2: Yeah.
0: I don't know.
1: Cool. I think that's all I got to say about that.
0: Yeah. Um, hopefully uh, we, we learn more. So the next question is um, from one of your students, right? An yeah, student? a
1: student in my online class. And I figured that this was a pretty common question. I'm sure you get this question, mm-hmm. or similar question, quite a lot. And uh, f- especially because of the timing of this episode, I figured this would be useful.
0: Yeah. So he or she, again, it's anonymous, right? Yeah, we can make it anonymous. So he's been studying five to six hours daily, right? Uh, At least recently, whereas before he was studying one to three hours. Yeah. And before he was doing really well, scoring in the mid-160s, which is more than enough to the school that he wants to go to. I guess the median score is a 159. So definitely going to get in there with the scores that he was getting. Um, three weeks ago, he reached his highest score of 166 and then had stayed in that range for a while, which is awesome. Actually, at this point, I would say, maybe you want to reconsider what school you want to apply to. But in any case, he says that he's up to his, his study hours to five or six, as we were talking about, and feel like things are sort of falling apart. His two most recent prep tests, 61 and 62, which are pretty recent were a 155 and a 157, which is yeah, a lot lower than the 166 high um, range that he was in. And he's feeling uncertain about logical reasoning and the logic game section, where he was feeling very confident before. He messed up easy questions on this these tests. Um, so he's feeling really uh, stressed out, which is not surprising. And in any case, he's... Wondering what to do. Um, I have some initial reactions, but yeah, what are, what are yours here?
1: Yeah, the well, I mean, the last thing is in the bottom of the email, you get, I'm planning to do seven to eight more tests to be fully prepared. Which, in nine you know, days. In the nine days remaining before the October 3rd LSAT. So my initial immediate reaction was to do the exact opposite of what you're planning to do. Um, you, let's see, you you were studying one to three hours a day and doing great. Then you went to five to six hours a day and started doing shitty.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, and
1: it's because it's. <laughs> And it, you know we're not like making fun of this student, obviously, because
0: this, this just happens this is like all the time. People... Super,
1: super common. I can't believe how I was yelling about it in my class last night. You know, the last thing that you want to do as the test date approaches is do more and more and more and more LSAT shit. You really need to be tapering down. You need to be well rested, focused, happy confident while you're doing the test. And if you're gonna grind out five or six hours a day of practice, or if you're gonna grind out a full practice test every single day, you are not going to be happy and focused and confident. Um, People get way too caught up in every individual test result and they go into the downward spiral and that's exactly what's happening with this student. You know, the last two days have really crushed my confidence. I got a 155 and a 157. Well, you know, you need to step away from the LSAT books, period. Yeah. I would say you need to take at least a full day off, probably Mm -hmm. a couple full days off. Yeah. And you need to be, you know, when you come back to the test, you need to be sort of itching to come back to it. You need to be like happy to be coming back to it. Because this is, this is definitely the burnout downward spiral. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens when you do too much, especially when you do too much at the very last minute.
0: I think the perfect analogy is working out. Like if you went to the gym and did heavy weights, you know, you did a bench press or something Monday, and then Tuesday, and then Wednesday, and you say on Wednesday, why, are, why can't I do as many reps as I yeah, did totally. yesterday?
1: Oh, I'm going to do more. I'm going to double up tomorrow. I got to get got to get back I got to do track. more.
0: Yeah, it's just you have to take a break. Your mind needs to rest and process uh, what you're learning and you need to be focused to do well. It it's it's really bad when people take tests late at night and then they do poorly and they wonder and I wonder. I don't know when we're t- when we're talking. I don't know when they get questions wrong. I'm like, I don't know if this is because you didn't understand it or if it was because you weren't focused and you couldn't just think clearly in that moment. And so now we're here scratching our heads for half of these questions. How many of these are things you really need to work on and how many of these things are um, just silly mistakes? I mean, we can kind of figure that out based on how difficult the question is, what they think about the question now, but it's all sort of up in the air. You don't want to put yourself in that situation where you're second-guessing your scores because you don't know if they really reflect your abilities.
1: Yeah. You've done the work. You reached a highest score of 166. This is way above the median of the school you want to go to. You deserve this school. You deserve a scholarship to this school. Mm -hmm. But you need to just realize that that work that you've put in isn't going to go away. You're not going to forget. But you're mojo is really really important here so uh take some time off and come back to it when you're feeling better about it and i think you'll be it'll be like fresh air coming in you know and you'll just all of a sudden it'll be easy again an analogy that i like to use is golf i I talk about stupid golf analogies all the time because i'm like a dorky amateur golfer Mm -hmm. um but i've played golf since i was a kid and that means that i have like a that decent little natural kind of a game. You know, I don't I I, uh, I learned how to play and mm-hmm. once you learn how to play, then you know how to play. But if I play a lot, if I play too much, if I start practicing a lot, it can actually be detrimental to the skills that I have because I start trying to over-engineer it, you know? I start I get too invested in it. I get like, I'm, I'm, I get super results oriented. I start judging myself for every little mistake. And then next thing you know, it's like, I've never played golf before. You know, it just, it disappears. And it's amazing. My buddies and I who are similar uh, kinds of golfers, we, we call it the reboot where we essentially just put our golf clubs away for two weeks or a month and come back to it. And you come back to it and all of a sudden you're like hitting it like you did when you were ten years old, back when you didn't care and you were good. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I'm not saying take two weeks off, I'm not saying take a month off of the LSAT, but I think you'll be amazed what'll happen if you just take a day or two off and uh, come back.
0: Yeah, and I would I mean uh, this is maybe this is a, a little random, but I was just thinking if if this student did nothing. Between now and October 3rd, I'd be willing to bet a lot of money that he will score higher than a 159 and a decent amount of money that he'll score higher than a 163.
1: Yeah, you, you can't score a 166 by accident
0: and he did he stayed at that range for a while
1: right yeah right this, this we're talking about this student has done 30 plus practice tests okay which is a solid amount of prep and has reached 166 and has been solidly in the mid 160s i mean you're a 160 something right i this student is a 163 plus or minus mm-hmm. and you you can't get like accidentally plus 10, but you can get accidentally minus 10 if you are really in that burnout downward spiral. Yeah. And so that's all that has happened with this student is confidence now has been crushed and that's because you overworked yourself and you're judging yourself. And I mean, (laughs) I envy the work ethic. I wish I had the work ethic. I don't. But sometimes that work ethic actually becomes detrimental when you're just putting in too much, too much, too many hours, too much effort, too too much investing your emotions in it, and you really just need to give yourself some space. Because yeah, I agree. I mean, sure, I'll bet everything that this student would score more than one hundred and sixty. Mm-hmm. Uh, why not? I mean, they've done it so many times. Why not?
0: Yeah, um, I'm saying even even if he did well, especially if. <laughs> He did nothing from right. now until the test,
1: right? And um, that's like me with golf. I mean, if I haven't played golf in a month, I'm a good bet. Like you, you'd like to see what game I bring to the first tee, especially if I don't hit any balls or warm up or at all. <laughs> like, yeah, I just need to. I need to go get get a bloody mary and then just roll straight out to the first tee, and and just stripe it because I've played golf since I was ten. And yeah, just
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. sorry.
1: <laughs> yeah, so that's all I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. If this student did. I would give permission for this student to do absolutely nothing in the last nine days, and you would still do great.
0: I mean, to be clear, for any of those people out there who are like, oh, okay, I got it. I I don't need to do anything. Obviously, in this context, with someone who has taken so many tests, put in so much time, and done so well on so many tests, that's why... His problem is the is the opposite of some people's problem, right? Some people aren't doing enough. They do two hours a week, and they need to pick <laughs> up their game. But um, in this case, it's definitely the opposite. Yeah,
1: this plan is not that plan is not working for you if you haven't done if you have not already invested the hours. But this student has clearly invested the hours and has reached a level that they would be perfectly comfortable with if they actually achieved that score on the test. Mm-hmm. So take some time off. Take some distance from it. Um, Look for an opportunity to end on a good one. We've talked about this before, but when you come back next practice test that you do, you're going to score 160 something and maybe make that your last scored test. Mm -hmm. Right. Don't, don't do scored tests right up to the very last minute. Instead, just decide, okay, I'm happy with that number. I'm going to stop now so that I don't risk going into the downward spiral again. I'm amazed how many people think that the plan is to like double down on the studying in the last couple weeks that works in college, right? I mean, that works for cramming where you're just trying to like memorize a bunch of shit that you can just regurgitate and -hmm. then have it out of your brain. That's not how the LSAT works.
0: No. I mean, I think some people benefit from dub- doubling down, but, but that's only because they haven't been doing enough. And no, so now they're doing, they're actually paying attention, they're actually reviewing the questions they got wrong, and they're finding themselves making progress. But yeah. for a lot of people, if you've already been studying a lot, doubling down is just double the trouble. Right? Yeah,
1: the people who, like I, I've had students, I mean, I'm amazed at how hard people work, but they're like, oh yeah, I was doing one test per day for two months, and now I'm going to, in the last two weeks, I'm going to do two tests per day.
0: Oh. And it's
1: just like holy shit. I mean, do they
0: work? Do they have a job?
1: Oh no, 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 no. These people are definitely, you know, um, fortunate enough to be full-time LSAT students. But um, and I don't, I don't know about my student, my online student here. I don't know what the story is. But it does seem like if you're studying five or six hours a day, you're probably not doing a lot more than that. Mm -hmm. But I would. I would definitely dial it down. I mean, it just seems seems crazy to me to be doing that much.
2: Yeah,
0: I agree.
1: I mean, my prescription, if I was going to try to come up with a way that you could fuck up the test, a very good way to fuck it up would be to do like a full practice test every single day in the last week before the test.
0: Maybe seven or eight in the next nine days. Maybe seven
1: or eight in the <laughs> last nine days. That sounds like a perfect prescription for fucking up. Yeah. So instead of that, you know, how about do the opposite of that? Do a section here, a section there, take a day off, you know, get some fresh air. Remember that you're very lucky to be in the situation that you're in. And uh, remember that you've put in all the work already. I, I, like, to rem- I like to say it's a little bit like, uh, again, to go back to the golf analogy. You know, if I have a tournament coming up and I, if I don't practice, which I don't practice, almost the worst thing I could do is go practice like the day before some tournament. Mm-hmm. You're sending yourself the message that you're not ready. And and instead you need to be sending yourself the message that like, Hey, I've put in the work. I'm good at this. And so maybe I'll do a little bit here or there just to kind of get in the rhythm of it. But this student does not need to reinvent themselves. They've already done the work. Yeah. So now it's just a matter of getting that performance out on the day of the test. And I think the way you do that is by showing up rested and happy and confident.
0: Yeah. Okay. Cool. So the next uh, question is from Jack. Uh, Jack actually works on the Hill here in D.C., it sounds like, in the House of Representatives. And um, he's been working through the PowerScore books. When he first started, when he first took a practice test, he got a 155, which is a good start although it sounds like he gave himself a little extra time because he lost track of time, which is not surprising. I guess that can happen at first. And he's found that he works very slowly. Um, he's finished the Logic Games Bible, and he's started timing himself more rigorously on the Logic game sections, and he still finds himself to be brutally slow. Uh, he thinks the Logic Games are his worst subject um, he can get the correct answers if given an abundance of time, which is not uncommon. But under test day conditions, I struggle to finish the last game and a half, sometimes two games. So it sounds like he's getting to one, uh, I'm sorry, two games, maybe the half of the third game. He wants to take the LSAT in December. Can I just and
1: first of all interrupt? Go right ahead. Um, this student definitely seems to be over judging himself. Mm-hmm he took a full test without doing any prep and scored a
0: 155? With extra time, so it's hard to well, judge Well, all he's saying exactly.
1: is he bubbled in guesses after the time was up, which... I mean, oh, okay. I see. I don't see. think that's like... That doesn't really taint your results very much, right? Yeah, I guess
0: I misread that. Yeah, okay. I think oh, he's, yeah, doing, he's in he's bubbling time bubbling in mm-hmm.
1: the questions he didn't finish after time is up. You shouldn't do mm-hmm. that. You should learn how he's a, to do he's that. He's a
0: cheater. He bubbled in after the time. But yeah, let's go ahead, 155. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, okay, well, let's give him a 153 then, you know. He does work on the
0: hill. Okay, yeah, yeah, one. (laughs) Yeah,
1: perfect. Um, A cold 150 anything is an awful good place to start. Yeah. Right, cold 150 something almost always ends up in the 160s, if not 170. So Mm -hmm. this is strong. Also, he's saying brutally slow on the logic games because he's only finishing two and a half or three games. Mm-hmm. Or, or sorry, two to two and a half to three games. Okay, well that's still fine, right? I mean, if you're if you're like kind of relatively new in your prep and you're doing two perfect games or two and a half perfect games or three perfect games, I mean that's awesome. That's a fantastic place to be. Mm-hmm. So you know maybe don't judge yourself so harshly and and stop saying I'm brutally slow. I don't think that's really a very I guess people are being self-deprecating, but it's not really like helpful to talk that way. It's wonderful that Jack can get the correct answers. <laughs> you know? like, yeah. If you get the correct answers, that means you're understanding it, basically. Mm-hmm. And now all you need to do is do a ton of practice, and you will get a lot better.
0: Do a ton of practice, and also make sure you're approaching it the most efficient way. Sometimes, like we were talking about before, right? people are testing answer choices when they don't have to, and stuff like that. So Yeah.
1: So Jack's going to take the test in December. Jack will have two full months. by the When this podcast comes out, Jack will have two full months to prep for the December test. And boy, that's time to make a lot of progress on the LSAT. Yeah. I feel like Jack's in a good place.
0: Yeah, and this is also a good problem to have, right? If his worst section really is the games, which it sounds like it might be, then this is something he can fix. He can make this a section that he gets zero wrong in and then worry about other things.
1: Yeah, you you love to have logic games as your worst subject. I mean, when when I see someone who's like 18 on the reading comprehension or 22 on the reading comprehension and seven on the games, Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh God, I'm going to help you a lot. Yeah. You know, like there's no doubt you're going to improve a lot because the games are really the most learnable section of the test for sure.
0: So his first question is, do you have any advice on how to pick up the pace? After reading the Logic Games Bible, I'm able to determine the type of game, and I can usually make most of the necessary inferences and recognize trends within the game, but I'm st- I still move very slowly. Any thoughts?
1: I think the best thing you could do is not worry about the speed and just continue practicing 35-minute timed sections. I mean, for me, I didn't really start getting perfect sections until the last week or so right before the test. Games was my weakness when I was prepping. I did a section a day, sometimes maybe two sections of games every day, and I would run out of time. But just through practicing 35 minute section after 35 minute section, um, I would review it when time was up. I would continue working my way through the games when time was up. I would think about better ways that I could have done a game. You know, if there's game one or game two that took me a long time. Um, I would figure out ways that I maybe could have approached that game better. But, uh, you know, once it clicks, it can really, really click. So I would just tell Jack, you know, take a deep breath and be patient and just wait for that click to happen. You can't force yourself to ride a bicycle the first time you try to ride a bicycle. You know, there's no amount of like gripping the handlebars tighter is not going to help you to, to ride the bike. It's more like you have to just let it go and just let it happen, and when it does happen it can it you know then all of a sudden you ride all the way down the street with no problem, and you're like, "Holy shit, this is great so um it sounds to me like Jack is doing exactly what he should be. I don't know what do you think
0: yeah some uh, I often encourage students I shouldn't say often, I always encourage them to at least at the beginning uh. <laughs> Take their time on the game. Make sure they're doing it right. And so I think we're saying the same thing there. Don't worry. In other words, don't worry about the time. Worry about how you're approaching the game. Are you setting it up correctly? Are you answering the questions correctly? And so forth. And sometimes you don't know that. You just try. And then you maybe look at the Logic Games Bible or whatever hopefully good resource you're using. Um, Maybe very soon, Nathan's games book. And figure out if you did it right and then what i would suggest is pull out another sheet of paper and do that same game again with the what you just learned what you figured out was the better approach because what surprises me is how often people will do a game they'll then either watch a video i've created or talk to me in class and figure out how to set up that game the best way or the most efficient way there's like you said before there's many ways to skin a cat but figure out a way that's maybe better than the way they set it up, make sure they're doing everything as efficiently and effectively as they can. And then I say, okay, do the game again right now. And they get to the third rule or they get to the second question. And they say, wait a sec, what did we do here? I don't remember. I mean, I just learned how to do this a better way and I don't remember. So it's like it forces you to internalize what you just learned. It kind of tests you. And you may remember the correct answer for some of the questions. But the point is, is can you do this again now more effectively, even just a little bit? Some of the small things make a difference and then do it faster. And I would actually note the time, at least the second time around doing the game. And if it's around 15 minutes still, I would say, hey, flag that game and come back to it again later until you can get that game down to seven minutes. And people feel like, hey, I'm repeating games. But what I have noticed is that people in class will say things like, hey, that game that we just did in Test 72 or 71 or whatever was just like the Singer's game or just like the, some other game that we had done a few times. It's that they made it part of themselves, and they could really like refer back to it and take advantage of what they learned from that game and apply it in a new game. It's not that the games are exactly the same, but certain parts of the game gave them clues about how they should set up this game that they encountered on the test.
1: Yeah, I mean, redoing a game can definitely reinforce those pathways that I guess are being built inside your brain. I'm no neurologist, but being successful at a game because you've done it before can sort of give you the feeling of what it feels like to be doing the game properly. And then absolutely, when you see another brand new novel game, you are more likely to, I guess, make the connections the games you know they they don't change very much over time right i mean they they don't exactly repeat themselves but many of the patterns repeat themselves so the more you expose yourself to the games the better you're going to do on any random brand new set of games so do more games do new games and redo games just do a lot of games i guess yeah that's pretty much my prescription
0: So uh, some other things I would suggest, which I think we talked about earlier when we were talking about the June 2007 game, uh, one thing you mentioned was making worlds. So if you're setting up a game and you realize, hey, look, I could create a couple scenarios here that would basically help me start to finish this game, I would do that. The second thing I would do is I would do the if questions first because then you can use the diagrams from those questions to answer other questions. Another thing I would do is while you're doing the if questions, I would not read the entire if question. Totally,
1: that's a that's a. I mean, I do that. I I sort of do it naturally without really thinking about it. But I've noticed it lately, mm-hmm. and so I've I've actually started you know making a point to to teach that in mm-hmm. class and with my private students. Uh, just to go, let me we'll give an example. Okay. Sure. Um, back to the June two thousand seven LSAT. Uh, question number one, actually, says, if the last digit of an acceptable product code is one, comma, it must be true that, and then there's a bunch of answer choices. Well, I think what Ben is saying is, and I couldn't agree more, I don't think I even see what happens after that comma. I, I I just go right into thinking about what happens when the last digit of an acceptable product code is 1.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: In this game, because we already figured out that the first two digits are either 1, 2, or 2, 4, if the last digit of an acceptable product code is 1, then the only world that can happen in is in the 2, 4 world, right? So it's going to be 2, 4, blank, blank, 1. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Once you figure that out, then it's okay to read the rest of that. That, That's when we would read the rest of that question. Yeah. And now it says, it must be true that. And right there, the very first answer, the first digit is two. Exactly. Yeah. No shit. That's the answer. Yeah. And so what we're saying is when they give you a new clue in these if questions, you need to follow that new clue to the, to, as far as you can follow it, before attempting to answer. There's just no point in attempting to answer. There's definitely no point in looking at the answer choices at all until you follow the implications of that clue. That clue always, always, always leads to some other thing or many things. And you have to figure out what those things are. I mean, that's your job. Yeah. You figure out what those things are, and then by the time you come back and actually read the question part, because it doesn't matter if it's a must-be-true or a must-be-false or a could-be-true or a could-be-false or what the answer choices say, who gives a shit? The important thing is, figure it out that if the last digit is one, then the first two digits have to be two and four. Yeah. And once you make that leap, then you can go in and try to answer the question.
0: No, I, I agree completely. That's exactly what I do. Um, sometimes students complain, they say, hey, well, wait, you started making inferences and the third inference you made answered the question. I'm like, I have no idea. I haven't even looked at the answers yet. You can't spend time making inferences and then every second dropping down and like, hmm, what does this do? Hmm, what does this Yeah, do?
1: did, did that answer it? Oh, yeah. oh, nope. Oh, I guess I'll keep making inferences. Okay, let's see. I made one more inference. Okay, did that answer the question? Yeah. Oh, nope. Okay, well, I guess I'll go back and keep making inferences. I mean, it doesn't take that long. Once the train is rolling, you know, you got to just keep going, just keep making the inferences until you can't make any more inferences. Then when you turn back to the question, you're just, it's going to be amazing how easy it is to answer that question. And yes, it's totally true that Ben and I would both go a few steps further than is necessary to answer the question in many, many cases. But you know, If we overkill a game, that's fine. The game is still dead, right? We still got it right.
0: Yeah, and sometimes it's actually super helpful to have done that overkill um, time and time again because I have a more complete diagram for question seven, for example, or whatever the first question is in that game or the second question or whatever. In a subsequent question, I look back at that and I have a lot of variables floating around there because I did some work. And I use that diagram to answer that question, whereas other people have this sort of one variable diagram that's pretty much empty and they can't use it for anything because it doesn't really tell them anything.
1: Yeah. And it can also be super useful even on that question for getting past the wrong answer choices. Mm
0: -hmm. Right, see that they're definitely wrong.
1: Right. If you get all the way to like an all, you know, a completed setup where there's only, say, two variables that can still flip flop or whatever, but you know everything else, you know exactly where everything else is. If it's, and let's say it's a could be true question, Mm -hmm. the four wrong answers are all going to be must be falses, right? If there's one could be true, then that means there's four that must be false. And if you've made a complete diagram, you're going to know for sure that the four wrong answers are wrong. And That means that you spend no time thinking about them. You don't have to test them. You don't have to even consider them. You're just like, nope, nope, nope. Oh, yeah, that one would work. The last one, nope. Okay, so the answer is D.
0: Yeah. If you ever find yourself guessing in the games, you're not doing something right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean,
1: on the LSAT in general, you need to have you know, a logical reasoning. You, you got to be like 80% accuracy or higher. Mm-hmm. I'd prefer as high of accuracy as you can possibly get, obviously. But more accuracy means you're getting it. On the games, it's like you need 99% accuracy. Mm -hmm. You just should not miss questions on the games. Your job on the games is to figure that shit out. And you'll develop a sense of when you're doing it right. When you're doing it right, it actually feels easy. Yeah. You know, because you understood the rules in the starting setup. You made some inferences, maybe. When you're doing, let's say, an if question, they give you a new clue. You follow that new clue combined with the old rules. You follow that clue as far as you can. And then when you turn to the question, you absolutely have no problem. It's like, well, no way. That's the answer. No, that Mm -hmm. can't be the answer. Oh, this one for sure is the answer. And you just feel, feel so confident. That is a sign that you're doing it right. Right, I mean, you I know that sounds like it doesn't it sound like circular reasoning, right? I said, like, oh, well, if you're doing it right, you just get them all right. But I don't think it is. I think it's it the games really should be easy, or else you're
0: doing something wrong. yeah, so quick recap for the for the tips that I was starting to give you for going fast. One is to see if you can create worlds initially when you're creating the diagram at the beginning of the game. Two, do the if questions first, with the exception of the very first question, which is usually just a process of elimination. Three, when you do the if questions, as Nathan has been saying, don't read the entire if question. Just read to the comma or wherever the rule ends, and then start making inferences. In other words, get the train going, and don't stop the train every time you make an inference. One way to keep that train going is to just... Hopefully all your rules, they should be diagrammed right together. They should be in the diagram or just right outside the diagram. And one thing I like to do is I just like to scan right over them. So I'm making inferences and I'm thinking to myself, are there any rules that I have not taken advantage of? Sometimes that can help me make one more inference that can keep the train going. The other thing that I'll do, and a lot of people don't do this, and I think it's hugely valuable, is if... Let's say I have five slots like our June 2007 game one. We have five slots and let's say I fill in two of them or three of them and I have two slots left. I will invariably, I will always put the, the last two variables kind of right above those slots. I'm saying, hey, I don't know where they go, but they are the variables that are left that I have to deal with. And I know that there are two left because there are two empty slots, Or I know there are three left because there are three empty slots and I'll list them out And as I'm listing them out, I'll realize, oh, wait a sec, I know something about T. T can't be before S or whatever. And then that will allow me to make another inference. But even if I don't make another inference by having those variables there, I can easily move them around as I'm going through the answer choices and see whether they could be true or could be false or whatever the question is asking. So in any case, two ways to keep the train going is to look at all the rules, make sure you've covered all of them, and two, to just figure out who's left. What variables have you not dealt with yet?
1: Totally. And a lot of times that'll take the form of, you know, I know that J and K have to go fourth and fifth, but I don't know what order they're in.
2: Yep.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: you just write parentheses around those two spots and put a J comma K into those two spots. Mm -hmm. So it's like, even though that's not a, you don't know with certainty where J and K go, you do know with certainty that they have to take up those two spots. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So once you take up those spots, then that might trigger some other thing, right? Yeah. And eventually you run out of inferences and then when you run out of inferences, then you go answer the question, but Yeah. not before that.
0: And you might not have made all the inferences you could have made, but you just try and you go as far as your yeah. train will take you. And then you stop and you say, Hey, I can't go any further. Let's see what I can do. And if it's not enough to answer the question, maybe it's enough to get rid of three of the answers and you can use the last two against each other to figure out which one is correct or yeah. where you need to go. But that's the general rule. And Step four, oh, shoot, I just forgot now. Oh, well, actually, step four is to, um, to four and five were these things I just mentioned. Look at all the rules and five, list the variables that are left, even if there's like three or four of them. In fact, the more there are left, the more you might want to write them down and just see, hey, is there anything here that I can actually deal with? Because I might know something about them. But they're, when they're out of sight, sometimes they're out of mind and we don't even think about them.
1: Yeah. I think that kind of moves us into um, Jack's second question.
0: Yeah. So it says, you or Ben mentioned in one of your podcasts that you disagree with the power score strategy of listing out all the implications of certain inferences. How much is too much when doing a setup? I think what he's referring to here is maybe not rules. Cause that's one thing that I don't do is when I, when I create an ordering game and I have linked a bunch of rules together, like, uh, H is before G, and G is before J, and J is before L and K. Right. I have them all linked together, and it's just a simple ordering game. I think PowerScore says, hey, figure out everything that can't be first and write that down. Figure out everything that can't be second and write that down. And to me, it actually adds clutter and right. slows me down, and I, I feel like I can see everything in that chain. And so I don't do not rules in that setup. I don't know what you do, but that's that's my... I, I think it's actually time-consuming and Adds clutter and therefore yeah same. Not I mean, everything. if
1: there's one spot that is super restricted, I might you know if there's one spot that's going to narrow down to two or maybe even just one player, yeah. mm-hmm. then I'll go. I'll, I'll figure that out. But no, I I don't need to. There are a lot of these sequencing games. The easiest I I feel like the easiest sequencing games are the ones where you can put all the variables into this one web of rules. Right. So you've got J before K before L and you've also got um, Q before K, and you've also got uh, L before whoever, someone else, and you've got this web of basically all of the players. Well, that's all you need for that game, and you really don't need to take all the time to say, well, because J before K before L, then K J can't go last, and J can't go fifth. Mm-hmm. You'll end up with 20 of these inferences that are like people who can't go in certain spots, but it ends up being really messy and just I think not helpful. So that's uh, yeah, that is one place where I think we both differ from the general power score uh, strategy. Other than that, though, I mean, if you're if you make an inference, uh, there's nothing wrong with writing that down. Yeah. A lot of the logic games is just baby steps and documenting the baby steps and then letting all those baby steps add up.
2: Yeah. So.
1: Don't get us wrong. Uh, Even if we don't necessarily write out all of those not inferences on certain types of games, that doesn't mean that we would advocate trying to do things in your head, and it doesn't mean (laughs) that we wouldn't be trying to document things as we go.
0: Yeah. By the way, sorry, while you were talking, it just reminded me I had one other tip for going faster, and this is something that I think a lot of people don't do, and that is when you encounter an if question... Not only do you want to keep the train going, or this is one way, another way to keep the train going in terms of making inferences, but that is a lot of times the if question will say something like, if T is third. And when I think about T being third, I think to myself, oh, well, that means S has to be first or second. And sometimes I'll just note that S has to be first or second by kind of drawing it above those two. So I'm like, okay, this variable has got to come over here. but In other occasions, I might say to myself, it would be really helpful to know whether S was first or second. And right then and there, I'll create two worlds just for that question. I'll put S first, and then I'll put S second, and I'm putting T third in both of those drawings because uh, that's what they told us initially. And I'll just complete them instantly. And people are thinking, why are you creating two new diagrams just for this one question? And I'm thinking, well... I am moving fast. I just I didn't yeah. know what to do with S. Now I know what to do with it. And as soon as I know what to do with it, I know what a bunch of other things are going to do. And so all of a sudden I'm done and I know the answer like you were saying before. Everything else I know is wrong. There's no doubts about anything. So the game moves really quickly yeah. and the question moves fast as opposed to you know, wondering what to do, testing out answer choices. As soon as right. you test out two answer choices, you've now just done all the work I've done and you still have three questions to contemplate.
1: Right, absolutely. Yeah, I it's uh, I, I frequently end up for um, an if question. I will frequently end up making two scenarios. Uh, like very frequently end mm-hmm. up making two scenarios. If that's what needs to happen, then that's what needs to happen. And I think students are, because they're in a hurry, right? It's because they're trying to go fast, then they're like, well, I don't have time to do that. Yeah. And so then they don't do it, and then they end up testing answer choices, which takes forever, or they end up trying to do it in their head, which um, yeah might work, but it also is you know open to making a lot of mistakes. And I think what an expert would do is just because you're kind of going through the game with more of like a Zen kind of thing, right? You're just like, well, I see that S must go first or second, and why don't I just write out those two possibilities and see if that triggers something else? Mm-hmm. And very frequently, it does trigger something else. And before you know it, you've got two completed scenarios. And now, again, once you turn back to answering the question, you just go through the answer choices in absolutely no time at all. Mm -hmm. It's an overarching theme, right? We spend much less time on the answer choices than our typical student does.
0: For all three sections.
1: Right, we spend more time on the reading comprehension passage, we spend more time on setting up the logic game, we spend more time on analyzing the argument in the logical reasoning, and when we're down in the answer choices, we know that 80% of those answer choices are wrong, and we just don't need to spend that much time with them because we've made the investment up front to figure out the question before we started getting like battered around by those professionally written wrong answer choices.
0: Yeah. Couldn't agree more.
1: Should we go through this? Um, so the rest of the second question from Jack, how much is too much time when doing a setup? Yes. And so, if, if I get a couple minutes into solving a question and realize that I'll need a lot more time, should I still continue with the question? What do you think about those?
0: Sorry, really quick. I, I have yeah. to hop off in three minutes. But Oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> sorry. I should have given you more warning. I didn't realize what time it was. How much time is too much time when doing a setup my i- I guess I do get this question a lot, and I would say I don't really have a time limit. If I'm making inferences and I'm moving forward, then I just keep moving forward. It's when I feel like uh, I can't see any more inferences, and now I'm just sitting here twiddling my thumbs. That's when I say I want to stop. and the reason for that is even if I spend five minutes, which would be a really no that's that's great that's a really long time, but it would have to be a really hard game. but if if I spent four minutes and I was making inferences and I made like three worlds and now the game is essentially done, I feel like that's a really valuable use of three or four minutes when a lot of people would say, no, no, by that time I need to be into the questions. Again, it depends on the difficulty of the game and so on, but I feel like if you're moving forward, that's time well
1: spent. Okay, can I rapid fire the rest of these questions? Yeah, go for it. Okay. How much time should I devote to logic games versus remaining sections of the test? That depends on how big of a weakness you have in the logic games. Um, I could definitely see investing more time in the games if it is your biggest weakness, especially because it's the section that you can improve on the most. Mm-hmm. So um, I would probably overweight games if I was going to overweight any section of the test for most students.
0: Yeah, and then second place would be logical reasoning because it accounts for half of it.
1: That's half the test, and it's also, I mean, logical reasoning is really learnable if you yeah. if you practice it.
0: Yeah. Should
1: I spend any time preparing for the writing section? I would just refer Jack back to... I actually looked this up. Check it out, Ben. I did preparation. We, we talked <laughs> <all> about... <laughs> yeah. We talked about the writing sample uh, in episode 34. And if you just go back and listen to the writing sample stuff that we talked about in episode 34, that is all you need to do on the writing section. You absolutely do not need to do any practice. Just go back and listen to that little bit that we talked about in episode 34, and you'll be in great shape for the writing sample. Yeah. Last one that we said we were gonna talk about was uh, early decision programs. And to, to just rapid fire that one, the only thing that I would love to say about right, uh, early decision programs is, please read the fine print. You are gonna be a lawyer, and when you apply a lot of these early decision programs, you are signing a contract. And if it's a binding early decision program, that can be really, really scary. Like my student who applied to Hastings and Berkeley and applied Binding Early Decision to Hastings, ended up getting into Berkeley and had to tell Berkeley that they couldn't go there because Hastings had admitted them off of the Binding Early Decision program. Ooh. Don't do that. So yeah. early decision programs can be really useful and really interesting, but if you're signing a Binding Early Decision program, you, know, you need to make sure that that's like a school that you absolutely would love to go to, even if you had to pay full price. I think we can talk about this more, maybe save it for a future episode.
0: Yes. Um, I would just say one last thing really quick. I, I did, uh, did some preparation too. It's oh. a little unusual day, I guess. I read Anne's uh, blog post about early decision. And one thing she mentioned is that in this current environment with schools really wanting applicants to commit because they're so short on applicants, that early decision has become an, a more effective tool because they know that you're going to come. So if it's a school that uh, you're, it's a reach school for you, Again, like Nathan said, you've got to read the fine print, but it's probably a good option because that school is, is feeling desperate for people who are going to say yes so they can keep their yields high, if you know what that is, and um, it's, a, it's a good option for reach schools, I would say. And just make sure it's the school you want to go to.
1: Yeah, we've heard some great things recently about early decision programs. But again, like do, you do not apply binding early decision to a school that you know you're going to get into or, you know, or, or you're declaring your one true love. You know, yes. I mean, don't <laughs> do that unless you fucking mean it. Yeah. Anne always says also that like if you apply early, binding early decision, they are not going to give you scholarship money. I mean, why would they? Yeah. So it needs to be a reach school if it's a binding early decision program. If it's not a binding early decision program, then I think that you're a lot safer. But yeah, you've got to read that contract. Yep. All right. You got to go, huh?
0: Sorry. Yeah.
1: No worries, dude. No, that was great. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, everybody, for listening.
0: Yeah, thanks.